So questions on this encounter with the Samaritans in general, Jesus' interaction with the one at the well. You can, things we brought up last week are fair game too. We've got questions about Samaria and framing this. Um, let her rip. Okay. Oh, Eric. Um, so they're traveling from Jerusalem to Galilee, correct? Not Jerusalem. Jesus' movement was from Jerusalem to the Judean countryside. So he literally, the, it starts with he went of Judea. So presumably that's the north-ish. Okay. Yeah. Um, so is it a normal route that they're taking? Would other Jews at this time have traveled through Samaria, or would they have purposely avoided it unless they absolutely had to? If your Bible has a map of... Of, uh, see if it's the correct route. They're going straight north. You could go to the coast and go north of the coast. It would probably be an extra 40 miles or so. But um, you could take... So there are alternate routes, but they're taking the most direct route. Is there any historical evidence of what was the norm for Jews? Were they so abhorrent to the Samaritans that they would take the extra 40 miles on foot? We There is some extra biblical evidence that certainly the... Those are the pharisaical. I mean, what's hard to tell is how many of the commoners do stuff because you've got this clear divide even in John. This this mob who doesn't know the law is accursed. The rap, the rabbis, the Pharisees, they wouldn't go near Jerusalem. They'd go out of their way. We actually, um, to, to give you an idea of just how unclean the Pharisees viewed the the um, Samaritans. We've found, or it's been discovered in some of their writings from Jesus' day, that they taught that um, Samaritan women were menstruating from birth continuously. Thus, they were in a. Thus, they were in a continuous. This is their teaching. It's not true. Thus, they're in a continuous state of ceremonial uncleanness. Thus, anyone who touches them becomes ceremonial unclean. Right. So there's no. That's, that's salvation. the view they had. Okay. Of them. So. If you're on board with that, now, now again, we know in these situations there are people who just culturally not care. 40 miles is a pretty big, but uh, it's a thing that the Jews have nothing to do with them. John throws that in as well. So the bleed over is pretty significant. So I don't know how uncommon this is, but I don't think they'd be buying food from Samaritans. Just that. That's the, that's the thought process. You're going to these type of unclean, filthy people. We know even into Acts, Peter is having a hard time eating meals with Gentiles when the Jews, when the big Jews from Jerusalem are present. We actually, get that from Galatians. But so those types of separation things, those are in place, um, even to Jewish fishermen. So I'm guessing not many, and the likelihood further that they're buying food from them as opposed to packing food. If you did have to go through Samaria, you'd, I'd think you'd go through without stopping at the town, without buying things, without interacting with the locals, and just get through as quickly as you can. Um, so is that, I'm not sure if you're going anywhere else with it, but that's, that's the information I have, yeah. Yeah, sorry for that tidbit, but that just to give you an idea of the scorn the Jewish religious elite had, that was their teaching. The, the, the divide between the Jews and the Samaritans was easily, I'd say, it'd be in the category, I mean, easily comparing things. I'd say it's similar to the divide, um, you know, in, in, the, in the South during um, the Jim Crow laws and stuff, that, that type of divide. I don't want to use your drinking fountain. You can have your own drinking, but that type of, thinking those, I'm just thinking of things that in our culture could be close, something like that, I mean, or worse even, something like that. Um, where you really want nothing to do with this person. Um, yeah, because John's term, literally the Jews don't share utensils with. And then my first thought was water fountains. You know, Jews don't. So him asking her to take a ladle and a, and a bucket. And, you know, Jews don't touch vessels that the Samaritans touch. But Jesus is willing to, is, is remarkable. Um, okay. Any other questions along those lines? Siobhan. Could you give a little background on the Samaritans? Because weren't they descendants of, like, Jacob, but then they started mixing? Where were you last week? I was on a work trip, sorry. (laughs) I'll be happy to. 
but I'd say two thirds of last week's message is exactly that. Um, the short the short history is the, the Israel. I'll try to do this. Um, Israel takes possession of the land under Joshua. Then you have the period of the judges. Then you have your first king. Um, so, and, and just to get, keep this in mind, the, the law of Moses deals with Israel as a unified nation, and yet they're, they're operating under three kings for they're split in half. I mean, we're off the program. We're off the script once you get to, to Jeroboam and Rehoboam. So you get Saul, David, Solomon. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, um, provokes the people, is a punk, and the no, ten northern tribes say later and just leave. And they make Jeroboam the king. God offers, before this, God sends a prophet to Jeroboam and says, look, if you will honor me and be faithful, I'll build a dynasty for you, just like I was going to just like I'm gonna build. Um, and we we're told that Jeroboam is afraid that if the people return to worship in Jerusalem three times a year, like the law of Moses prescribes, their hearts and their loyalty and allegiance will shift to the house of David and they'll kill him. So he sets up an alternate site of worship. He makes golden bulls. So right out of the gate... It's a civil, it's a civil war. Well, not even a war. There's not a war. It's a civil revolt. And then we get immediate paganism, immediate idolatry. And then without any exceptions, all the kings in the north are terrible, wicked guys. And what gets repeated is he walked in the sins of his father, Jeroboam, until you get to Ahab, who, um, who puts it. So, so it gets called Samaria because they make the capital, the city of Samaria in Mount Samaria. And so very quickly, just like we'll talk about D.C., and we're referencing the capital, but we're also meaning the government, um, Samaria starts to become synonymous for the northern kingdom, although most commonly in the Old Testament it's Israel. When you see Israel and Judah, you're talking about the ten northern tribes and the two southern tribes. So Israel's capital is Samaria, and they don't recognize the uh, books of the Bible after Moses. And the reason for that is because the books of Moses talk about the place the Lord your God will choose, but they don't identify the place. Once you get to 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, the, the, David chooses Jerusalem. And now you've you got to go to Jerusalem. So you could, in theory, in some sense, hold on to the first five books of Moses and claim the place that the Lord your God will choose is Mount Samaria, which is apparently what they did. Then, after they're taken captive by Shalmaneser and the Assyrians, Shalmaneser repopulates the land with these people from all over the place. Um, and you get the syncretistic worship where they, the text says they, they feared the Lord, yet they worshipped other gods. So they're, they're trying to have their cake and eat truth, trying to worship the living God, and they're trying to worship these other gods. And it's, it's terrible. I mean, and, and part of the point I was making last week is the point isn't that the Jews thought too lowly of the Samaritans. The point is the Jews thought too highly of themselves. In one sense, the Samaritans are terrible. I mean, and that's one of the things we see Jesus do. He doesn't, well, who can tell? No, you guys worship what you don't know. I mean, that's, that's got to be a stinging statement. It's not the critical issue for Jesus, because the critical issue for Jesus will be, who do you think I am? But since you've asked, yeah, your mountain's the wrong mountain. Salvation's of the Jews. Yeah, you're, you picked the wrong team on that one, certainly. Um, so there's no, there's no confusion on that point. Then when the Israel gets taken off the land and gets brought back and Zerubbabel tries to build a temple, the Samaritans claim they want to, hey, we worship the Lord, can we help you? And no, you have nothing to do with us. So then they build a rival temple on Mount um, Gerizim, which is right where we're at. We're at the foot. So in Deuteronomy, when the people take possession of the land, they set up an altar on Mount Ebal at two camps of people on Mount Ebal and on Mount Gerizim. There are two mountains with a valley in between them. And the people, the, the part of the people on Ebal pronounce the covenant cursings, and Mount Gerizim pronounce the covenant blessings. And so this has got a rich history in the taking possession of the land. So when the woman says this mountain, she's looking at Gerizim, which is where they're claiming now the worship is supposed to take place. So that's that's the backdrop of, of all of that. But that took me five minutes, and I spent about 30 minutes of it last week on it. So check, check it out. All right. Um, this is the greatest hits. Awesome. Okay. Um, any, other, any other questions on this? Um, so let me, let me stir this up some. So the, the thing I want to highlight is what issues Jesus is willing to flex and bend on and what he doesn't. 
Jesus does not flex the truth. She's got to deal with her sin. Yes, your worship's false. Yes, this is the wrong mountain. The Jews got it right. I mean, in that sense, there's no compromise. There's no, um, there's no flexibility. But that, that this rabbi would ask this woman of the Samaritans for, to help him and give him water, yeah, he'll do that. So all of the issues of dignity and pride and decorum are completely flexible for Jesus. Rabbis don't talk to women. Jews don't talk to Samaritans. And given that we know from the beginning Jesus knew about her past, Jesus is asking a historically immoral woman to give him a drink of water. And all of that's flexible and on the table. The thought that we might have of, oh, well, I don't that's beneath me, or I wouldn't talk to that sort of person. That's completely gone. So there is no flexibility on the contents of the message. There is no flexibility on Jesus' identity, her sin, true worship. What's completely flexible is Jesus' pride, Jesus' sense of decorum. Those are the things that completely, I mean, he's, he's going to humble himself to the point of death on a cross. In one sense, this is nothing, right? I mean, the, the extent to which Jesus will humiliate um, which is a cognate with the word humble. Yeah. This, so so I, that's part of the lesson I get from this is, you know, any part of sense of that's, you know, the, the, of disdain to talk to someone. I mean, we can, we can have disdain for people for political reasons. Oh, they're a liberal or they're conservative or, or there are any, any of those other things. Yeah, that's completely cross those lines. Who cares? Be like Jesus. Reach out to them in love. Talk to them. Share the words of life. Um, you know, and yet don't compromise on the truth of the gospel. Don't compromise in any way, sense or form with the content of the message. So. Zach. Um, it's not exactly the same situation with like someone that looking down upon or anything like that, but just the context of like different religion, um, Sometimes if I'm talking to a coworker who follows a different religion, it's like hard sometimes for me to, uh, it just feels like, I don't know, to do it in like a loving way of, you know, your religion is wrong or like it's, it's not the right God. Like, so it's like, you know, how to go about that. Like what you said, like you don't compromise on the religion part. Like God is the true God, you know, let's, you know, whatever other religion is. And it's like, you're not worshiping the right God, but you know, how to go about that in a, a loving way or, respectful way i don't know it's just no 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 that's a tough subject and that's that's the balancing act maybe the closest comparison might be mormons at least when i was in the 90s i think they're moving away from this but in the 90s there's this big push um for the mormons to just be viewed as another denomination they're really trying to co-op our nomenclature i mean the last time i talked to a mormon missionary in in new hampshire it took me 15 minutes to get him to agree that we disagreed on anything no, they're really just, we're just another denomination. And in a sense, the Samaritans are trying to say, yeah, we're still, we're just, we're sons of Jacob too. We're, we're uh, worshiping the Lord just like you guys. We do it a little differently. And the Jews are like, no, you're not. Stop talking like that. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and so that's, that's maybe in some point of comparison. I, I think the more recent direction of the Mormon church is to mark its own course and split. But there's, no, they're still trying to hide in the shadow. I thought their most recent high profit guy wanted them to... They're honestly, they're going like almost a progressive oh. direction. So. Um. so they're the Mormons, from what, from what I understand, they, their trajectory is less distinctively Mormon and more in line with like progressive, okay. like accepting LGBTQ, the whole alphabet gamut. Okay. Gotcha. So anyway, so, so just use my example. So, no, it's tough because on the one hand, this is wrong. This is false religion. And yet the disgust and the disdain is not here. Like, that's part of what's shocking. On the one hand, Jesus knows everything about this woman before he asks for water. He knows she's, to whatever degree she's involved with, with the Samaritan religion, to whatever degree she's part of that system, she's wrong. And she's engaged in false religion. You, I mean... You can read it so quickly. You worship what you don't know is <laughs> a pretty strong statement. And yet he reached, starts the conversation. He makes the initiative. He puts himself in a position where he could use her help. I mean, that, that was just stunning to me. Like Jesus is asking for help from this woman. 
could you give me a drink of water? I mean, it's just that type of humility and that willingness to flex, but not on truth, but to flex in regards to, I'll humble myself, sure. You know, I'll, I'll do it. What do I need to do to start this conversation? I'll do that. Okay. I'll turn it to spiritual things. I'll, I'll get it to where it needs to go, even as she's not playing, not being too helpful. <laughs> right? I mean, she's going to change the topic very quickly after he brings up her husband. She takes it on the chin. She doesn't deny it. She doesn't try to excuse it, but she doesn't want to linger there. Right? Um, and so she's not really, she's not really being super helpful in this whole thing. And Jesus doggedly perseveres because he's seeking to save the lost. I mean, God's seeking those who will worship him. I mean, I've said this before, but, you know, you talk about seeker-sensitive churches. There's only one seeker, and he's God, right? No one, I mean, this is Romans 3, no one seeks for him. God is seeking, Jesus says, those who will worship him, spirit and truth. So, um, yeah. Okay, other thoughts, questions? Oh, Mary. So going back to the alphabet thing. So, sorry. So <laughs> Let's see where this goes. All right. Well, no, when I get into a discussion with anyone yeah. about being wrong yeah. in my, okay, yeah. and still being able to love them, but it's not right, yeah. I need a way to... better uh express express that so that it doesn't look like i'm judging right. i mean yeah i get yeah sure. that whole thing i don't i don't know how to address that well it's tough because in different contexts the challenge is different right because i've made this distinction when we did our series on transgender homosexuality and abortion dealing with apologists for those positions and what I would say to someone advocating and defending that agenda would be very different than what I would say to an individual struggling with those thoughts and thinkings, right? So the, the prophets of the false religion and the proselytizers of the false religion, false beliefs in whatever category they are, are different than the people who, these are the categories Jude gives us. If you go to the end of Jude, there's some who are, who, yeah, some you snatch out of the flames. So if I was talking to someone confused about their gender, I would probably have a different approach than if I was talking to like a professor, gender studies major professor, who I'd speak more frankly and more just bam, you know. I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to uh, in any way compromise truth, but the the gentleness, the firm. However, going at it. But what we need to affirm, and and I what I try to do is just link it back to the Bible. It's like, look, I'm a Christian and I believe the Bible is God's word, and my understanding is the Bible says X. And I believe that, you know, um, and the, the challenge is we don't want to be, res and I think the church may have been somewhat guilty of this in the past, is respecters of sins. It, generally speaking, the sins I don't struggle with are the ones I view as really bad. And the ones I struggle with, well, that's what everyone deals with. You know what I mean? And so, no, so, so understand the unbelieving mindset. The unbelieving mindset wants to say that we believe what we believe about sex and marriage because we want to uh, dominate, shame, and exercise power and control over people and hate people, right? But they got some credence for that because, and I'm just going to generally speak about the Western church, to their ears, we say marriage is holy, marriage is, but when when the when no fault divorce laws happened under Reagan, Reagan was the first guy to introduce them. Where was the outcry from the church then? Where was the marriage is sacred then? And so the unbelieving mind sees not a lot said, not a lot is said about you know fornication, adultery, divorce, and all of a sudden we get to this thing, and now marriage is sacred. And so to whatever degree we've overemphasized some sins or minimized other sins, I get why they look at us and they say. I'm not really sure you're the pro-marriage people. You just seem to be the anti-gay people. You know, Not that we can change what we believe, but I get why. There's a reason the Amish win every court case they're in, because no one questions whether the Amish believe what they believe. They're driving horses and buggies. Like, no, no. There's a re No one thinks you're just doing that to oppress people. Like, people get that they're sincere. I get why Americans watching the Western church struggle with 
the church at large's sincerity as being pro-marriage. I, I get the, the stumbling block we put in front of them, which is simply to say, I'm not going to compromise what I think is true, but I'm going to get a certain amount of, yeah, I can see why you have a hard time taking some Christians seriously um, on this. I, I can see why we've made this hard to, 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 to believe. So I think a certain amount of humility is good. Um, I think anything, the other thing I'd say is that um, any joking, snickering, mocking along those lines immediately, um, well, no, immediately destroys our testimony. Because again, I've got to get an unbeliever to believe if they want to talk to me about this, if this is going to be the thing they want to talk about, which is very quickly what happens. Oh, you're a Christian. So what do you think about, they're going to bring another litmus test. And the second they catch from me any sorts of, of, of snickering, mocking, it's going to tell them, see, I knew it. You just do this because you like to feel better than and look down on people. Which is why, really, that's like, that's, we, what's the line that, uh, what's the line, um, who, wrote, who wrote Dorian Gray? Um, Oscar Wilde said, a gentleman is someone who never accidentally offends someone. There may be times to get someone's face. I'm not trying to deny that. Be aware. Be aware. Um, and so just, I try to tie it back to Scripture. I, I believe, I'm a, as a Christian, I'm one who believes the Bible is the Word of God, and I think the Bible is clear on this, is what I believe. You know? um, but even when we put it into our statement of faith, we didn't privilege homosexuality. Out, we put, um, if you, I, think, I think the statement's well said. We believe marriage is the only context, legitimate context for human sexual to be, sexuality to be expressed, and we believe all other forms, such as we put um, fornication, adultery, homosexuality, and others, making it clear this is one of a couple wrong, sinful expressions of human sexuality, and not trying to single it out like homosexuality is the one unforgivable sin. No, there, here's the valid place for se- human sexuality, and everything else is a, is a perversion, everything else is a twisting, everything else is corrupt. Um, and we're not, we don't want to not say that, but we also don't want to just shine the spotlight on homosexuality as if adultery is not wicked and under the Old Testament a death penalty offense, which it was. You know? so, so the balancing act I find to be um, not compromising, but not trying to make it like these are the really terrible things. Um, I mean, all sin's terrible, but um, yeah, I... Uh, that that's if anyone wants to jump on board with that or, or say more, I'm sure there's more to be said. Christina, um, <clears throat> like you said, um, we always have to bring it back to the Word of God, and I know for me, it's been a blessing to minister to people and always bring it back to the Word of God, like Romans one, how it talks about that particular sin is unnatural, and then one of the ultimate um, things is that. I do try to put myself in the same vein as them. Like you said, my sin is no greater than theirs, and their sin is no greater than mine. And I love to go to uh, Corinthians 6, 9, where it says, I think it's Corinthians 6, 9, 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Such were some of you. Such were some of you. So I always like to bring out the point, whether it's my sin, a liar, cheater, whatever, it says, such were some of you. So you can be saved, but you have to turn from that sin. And I have found that to be um, really beneficial and enlightening to homosexuals. I once had an auntie, my mother's sister, who called herself a homosexual for years. Um, she came to live with Mark and I, and we were able to minister to her. And um, a lot of people say they never knew those particular scriptures. And then she denounced that lifestyle, got married, stayed married for 20 years. And um, there was one other situation. But I'm just saying how powerful the scriptures are. But a lot of people perish for the lack of knowledge because they do not know. They do not seek out to find. They just, you know, decide, well, this is what I want to do. This is what I want to be. But sometimes if you bring the truth of the word to them, the Lord is... His word will not return void. Anything else along those? Oh, Jennifer? Uh, Rosaria Butterfield comes to mind when talking about this, and I just think she can be a good example. When can you're looking, you tell us who she is. And so, how you interact with her? I don't I know, know exactly all the all the details. So basically, she had a 
homosexual lifestyle and there was a pastor who she was in his home hated what he believed he didn't compromise the truth and yet he showed care and love and over time she came to faith and now her she's now married um, I believe to a pastor and she wrote the book um, the gospel comes with a house key and just how hospitality and having people in your home um, again not compromising truth but when they see you love other people in the church and when they see your care for them how that really opens up that door for sharing the gospel. And so I think she can be a modern day um, help sometimes to putting flesh on bones of what does this look like to not compromise truth and be like, we're speaking biblical things in our home, come into our home and we still care about you as a person without condoning your lifestyle. Um, And then the other thing that came to mind as you were talking was when I was at the pregnancy center, um, abstinence was something we talked about, which was not a comfortable thing to tell someone in front of you um, about. And I remember one gal, this was not the normal, um, but just talking about, do you actually know what God says about sexual sin? And she didn't. And her response basically was, that makes me not want to do it. I I never had someone say that except for her. Um, But we are not, we don't know how God is going to work in someone's heart to when they hear what he says. Yeah, good, good. Oh, Deb. I also was hearing what you said, um, Jen and Pastor, you said love does not equal affirmation. And um, that is something that I struggle with because there are people in our lives who've accepted the wrong lifestyle or the wrong living with this one and living with that one, even, and And they know how I feel about it, but how do I still be affirming as I interact on a house key type of thing? Because um, uh, there's even getting to loved ones in your family. You still have, they've decided they're coming out of the closet. And they want to have a wedding. And it's like you're offering your, your estate for them to get married on? You know, how does this all fit together? It okay, just we're, is a okay, mess. We're, we're going on a tangent, but I'll go a little further, sure. The challenge, the challenge for us, Paul, Paul in uh, 1 Corinthians 8 and 9, on the one hand, a demon's, an idol's temple is nothing. Paul says, I can eat a meal there, right? So on the one hand, he's not doing like, oh, this is evil ground. Yet in 1 Corinthians 10, pagan worship and, and participating in evil is a very different thing. So um, when, you're, when, you're, when you're dealing, and this is where, you know, um, the culture that insists, if you don't affirm me, you hate me, is going to want you to affirm them by coming to the wedding, by, by, by approving of that. And I would say, I, I don't think you can in conscience do that. Um, but... Well, you can. Here's here's what I found helpful is like, yeah, we disagree. Cool. You want to have a, get a burger? Like, no. I mean, like, no, because they're so ready for. Oh, we really disagree. You hate me. Like, no, we disagree. You want to go chat? You want to come over to my house have some coffee? Um, that that'd be the first thing I'd say is making it clear we can have a real disagreement and not have to f- like hate each other and be cruel to each other. Um, that you got to be wise to not um, affirm that the. The shift has been from tolerate to accept now to if you won't celebrate this person, you hate them. And, and the reality has got to be, oh, yeah, I can't, I can't do that um, without being a liar. So I, I can't. Uh, but if, and so, if yeah, if, if the family members want to hoist that on you, there's not much you can do. Um, but you can certainly try to make it clear. You, usually what they're expecting is once you make the statement, I don't think that's right, Therefore, you are not welcome in my home ever again or something, you know. And so try to making it clear, like, no, you know, we disagree. Merry Christmas is a Christmas present. We disagree. We want to come over for dinner on Thursday, you know, like, like trying to make it clear. We don't actually believe disagreeing means I hate you, um, you know. But no, where, where you're trying to be forced to affirm, to approve is, is challenging, you know, um, because people will try to, that's what the culture says love means. And so people, people want to force believers to either compromise on that point or, see, see, we knew you hated us because you think it's wrong. You know, like, okay. And, no, and fair enough, that can be done. Um, but yeah. Mary, microphone. Oh, you got the mic.
Um, so I guess I have a question on what do you do with a lot of people will actually call themselves by the name of brother who like when we look at first Corinthians five eleven, mm-hmm. I assume you already knew I was going there. What do you do with someone as far as hospitality when we are told do not even eat with such a one? Right. So let's let's go to the passage you're talking about. First Corinthians five. Um Sure. Um, 1 Corinthians 5, in the first part of the chapter, we're dealing with an unusually egregious case of sexual sin. There's a guy having an affair with his stepmother, um, and the church is tolerant. They're, they're affirming. They're proud of it, and Paulus rebuke them. And then after, uh, after he deals with that specific, he gets back to general practice in verse 9. Of chapter 5, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Notice again, we've got sexual morality next to greed and other things. You know, he's, he's not privileging it, but he's also not trying to pretend that's not wrong. And the, the danger for the church is we want to judge the pagans. We want to judge the unbelievers when he's saying, no, I didn't mean that at all. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reveler, drunkard, swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So let me, um, let me try to deal with that. Yes, where you have got somebody... Let me, let me speak in the, the broad center road, and let me deal with the edge case in a second. So the broad center road is, yeah, where you've got somebody who has a profession of faith, and you know them to be a Christian, and they're walking in disobedience. You warn them, you warn them, and then, yeah, if they don't listen, at a certain point, you've got to say, I'm going to love you best by separating from you. This is consistent with a number of passages. Second Thessalonians 3, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take note of them and have nothing to do with them, that they might be put to shame— but do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as a brother. Um, or Romans 16, note such a person and avoid them. So where you've got professing believers, especially, I'd say, in the first instance, in your own local church, people who've profession you've heard and received. Now, it's tricky. What do you do with a coworker who says, yeah, I'm a Christian, but you've never heard their confession. You've never seen them. Like, it's certainly where, where we know each other, absolutely. Where we are known to each other, absolutely. I've... I've, I've had at least one person in my life who said they were a believer, and as I talked to them, it became very clear to me what they meant was they're an American moral Judeo-Christian person. And in short order, I stopped. Even, so it's not a magic formula. In fact, I think you could argue, because this is passive, not anyone who calls himself, but anyone named a brother, Paul may even be saying anybody who a church is willing to claim is theirs. The Greek is anyone named a brother. The New American Standard says any so-called brother, but it's literally anyone named a brother. So I think an argument could be made for, is there any group of believers who's willing to testify this guy's one of us? Which might then make the, I'm a Christian, but I don't go to church, co-worker, a much easier fix. But to, to put it, put a sharp head on it, and you know where this conversation's going, okay? No, didn't, she wasn't part of it. She knows about it. Where there's confusion... I'd just clarify the point. So I had a friend of mine at Simpson. Now you know where I'm going. Um, had a roommate who said they were a Christian and yet was living immorally. And basically I says, look, what you need to do is ask them, like, do you really want me to take your profession of faith credibly? Because if I do, then I'm going to have to warn you and then have nothing to do with you. And so that's exactly what happened at Java Joe's. So you say you're a Christian. Do you actually want me to treat you like one? <laughs> and, and okay, get some clarity on the situation. Um, yeah, but I, so I don't know if everybody you brush shoulders with who say, oh, I'm a Christian. Okay. And if you're aware of that, that this comes into play, I think in most immediate circumstance, it's the local church at Corinth, but you can always seek clarity. And then, oh yeah. Then when you've got someone who's a professing believer and they insist, no, I'm a Christian. Well then, yeah, I, now we're not dealing with evangelism in the world. We're talking about the church and the, 
I am modeling what I, I think, this is back to first John, I think you're walking in darkness and actually separated from God. You're claiming you have fellowship with him. And so my not having fellowship with you models what I think is going on spiritually in the hopes that you'll come to realize that and repent and come to your senses and be restored. So as an act of love for you to show you the severity of what I think is going on and to help not reinforce your delusion that you're walking in the light even while you're walking in darkness, I'm going to model what I think God's doing. I, I think that's the logic. But yeah, you can always seek clarity if you're not sure. But you, what you're bringing up is an absolute separate scenario where you've got a credible profession of faith or somebody you've heard their profession of faith and now they're walking in disobedience. Oh yeah, we don't just love them and have a burger. Yeah, that's, that's a special case. You want to go further with that or does that deal with your, your question? Microphone. No, that's pretty much what I was talking about was people that you meet who say, I am a believer and what you do with them when you're like, okay, well, your life is not proving this. And now I'm not really sure what to do with you because you're <laughs> calling yourself a believer. Am I sharing the gospel with you? Right, because it seems right. like you've already got it, but you will not submit yourself to God. Right. So so the first thing you can do is just find out if if they even know what the scripture says, open the Bible, take them to it and see how the response is. And if their response is, yeah, Paul was a bigot and this stuff, well, that's going to tell me whatever you mean by Christian, we're probably meaning some different things here. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, oh, okay. Or f figure out where they're at, but getting knowledge. Timothy in the back. Um, kind of off this subject a uh, little bit, but uh, back to the, the main sermon today, could you speak a little bit to someone who might, you know, want to infer that Jesus was using some sort of trickery or, or that's not quite the right word, but to, to have like, hey, you know, go get your husband. He knew full well that she didn't have a husband, you know, which, of course, you talked about, but yeah. that there wasn't some sort of like um, deceit in that sort of question or line of questioning. Does that make sense? Sure. Somebody might take it that way well I, a couple a couple things um the the the, the bible assumes the default position for an adult is married the bible knows of plenty certainly knows of unmarried adults but that's the assumption so it's if the first knows why would you assume i'm married well the bible generally assumes that um two it's culturally appropriate jesus disciples are surprised he's talking to this woman um so him saying call your husband but it, it there's, there's no deceit going on here. Call your husband. Let's see what you say. It's, it's almost like a, a, a test. Let's see what, how you're going to answer. Let's see where you're at with this. Because Jesus is clear that he does know. So if the thought is, well, he asked and she didn't know that he knew, and then he said, yeah, go call your husband. You know, he's spoken rightly. There, I don't think there's any deceit there. There is a sense of reversal, of surprise, what I called irony, but... Um, I don't think there's anything deceitful in it any more than um, any time God calls on men to do things. I mean, think about even like Abraham. God tells Abraham to offer up Isaac. Was that a trick? Was that? I mean, it's the same logic. Let's see what you're going to do, Abraham. Oh, now I know that you won't withhold your son. Well, did God not know that before? Why tell Abraham he's got to kill his son when you know he's not going to kill his son? I, I just say, no, I don't think it's a trick. Um, it's, it's of a similar vein of other things God has done that he doesn't apologize for, that I'm not going to apologize for either. But, no, fair question. Further, oh. Just a kind of, I think, First uh, Peter, four, uh, especially chapter 4, helps us to understand the difference between the gospel being an offense and us being an offense. Yes. The gospel is offensive to to even us, me sometimes. Uh, I don't like to hear what it has to say. But uh, the point is to not for me to not be offensive. Right. And if I can jump in there, this, it's, this kind of jumps into, I've got a mic, so I'm jumping in. <laughs> There's no uh, if about it, Zach. That's what I was going to say. No, yeah. the, it was something that just was kind of, that kept kind of jumping into my mind as, as during this conversation is the importance of 
being willing to bend on human traditions and human stuff, but being absolutely rigid, unwilling to bend on God's standard. I mean, that's exactly what we see with how Jesus interacts with the woman of the well. You know, it was, there was nothing biblical, there was nothing scripturally or or law-wise that would prevent him from interacting with her. Purely tradition. He went, he just blew the tradition out of the water. But as soon as it came down to a moral issue of, you know, what is your, let's talk about your sex life. Right. Are you being righteous in your sex life? No, you are not. He just, right down the line there. Yeah. No, no. No, that, no that's absolutely, that's absolutely true. Absolutely true. And this is, if you turn to Luke 15, this is, this is Jesus' whole point with, um, because the accusation against Jesus is this, this man welcomes sinners and tax collectors. Um, Luke 15. I tried making the same point when we went through Luke. Jesus meals with sinners because he's offending the Pharisees. Remember the woman walks, wipe, comes in crying and wipes his feet with her hair, and the Pharisee thinks if he knew what type of woman she was, he wouldn't let her do this. So inappropriate. So Jesus' solution is... And again, this is, I've tried to emphasize this, and I'll continue to try to emphasize this. The solution of the tension, Jesus, how can you hang out with sinners and tax collectors, is not to say they're not as bad as you think they are. That is not Jesus' solution. They've been marginalized and oppressed and misunderstood. He doesn't bring in like a Marxian framework of trying to understand really. No, here's his solution. So John, so Luke, let's start at 14. In Luke 14, starting in 25, is Jesus, in Luke's gospel, single hardest, staunchest, strongest call to discipleship. It's absolute. He demands absolute loyalty, absolute allegiance, absolute commitment. And if you're not willing to do that, he says, go home. So it, get, get the flow of this. The end of 14, verse 25, great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Jump down to 33, after he gives the example of going to war with another king or building a tower. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So that, that is Jesus' strongest, most absolute call to discipleship. Now look at how 15 starts. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees said, and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives, literally welcomes sinners and eats with them. So how does Jesus respond to that charge? Jesus, you're welcoming, you're in fellowship with, and especially in their minds, that's eating a meal around a table, table fellowship, there's a level of acceptance. It's not for nothing that our sign of ongoing communion and fellowship with God, communion, is a meal. We just celebrated this morning. It's not for nothing. Um, Jesus' solution is found in the three parables, the parable of the coin, the parable of the sheep, the parable of the two sons, which Tamor taught a couple weeks ago. But notice the resolution. So they were coming to him, he's grumbling. So he said to them this parable, verse 3, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them and does not leave the ninety-nine in open country and go after one that is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Jesus' solution to the charge, Jesus, you eat with these notorious sinners, is yes, but they're repentant sinners. So Jesus isn't like high-fiving with drunkards and profligates and fornicates in their unrepentant state, just loving them and hanging out with them. He's calling them to repentance. This happens right after his strongest call to repentance. And Jesus' resolution of the tension of the people he's keeping company with is they're repentant. That, that's the critical component. The same thing gets repeated in the lost coin, right? Uh, look at verse 10. Just so I tell you, there is joy in heaven for the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And we saw the prodigal son. What does he do? He comes to his father and confesses his sin and repents. And, and there's great joy. So Jesus' resolution is not, well, they're not as bad as you think they are. Jesus' resolution is, yeah, but they've repented. 
and that that makes that makes the difference for for who he's hanging out with and fellowshipping with. So Jesus will will go eat with them. He'll even go eat with Pharisees, who in the Gospels are the worst. But he's always bringing it to a point, calling them to repentance, calling them to deal with their sin, just as he's doing with here. So, he, yeah, he's willing to sit at the table and eat with the Pharisees. And then he's going to quickly bring it to these issues. So by all means, eat with fellowship with wicked, immoral people. And bring them to a point of a call or decision dealing with their sin and, and dealing with Christ. Yes. So the woman at the well, it doesn't specify repentance or Jesus doesn't mention that. Um, is that assumed? I mean, he dr- deals with the sin, but it doesn't say that she goes and tells the townspeople all that he said or all that he told about her, but it doesn't specify that she had turned from that sin. I, I think it's implicit. I, I think it's fairly implicit for two, for two reasons. She changes the topic and yet her report of Jesus is the topic. Here's a man who told me everything I've ever done. She leaves her water at the well. The clear implication is she's excited through, like she forgets her vessel of water in her excitement to go back. So I think it's fair to read into that a level of conviction and excitement and thrill that the Messiah is here. And the report is, he told me everything about myself, which I know isn't her saying, he told me about my five husbands, but that's the next, well, what did he tell you? I mean, she's totally open to that question. What do you mean he told you everything? Well, he knew about my five husbands. He knew about me living with my... So if, if, it's, if it's right to infer that she's coming to the well at noon because she's already somewhat of a pariah or outcast, she's actually now finding people, reporting what Jesus said and how he was a prophet, I think there's a fair implication of her having a, having a different sense of shame about her sin and a different response to her sin. I, I can't... The text doesn't make it absolutely explicit, but... I think that's a reasonable reading of, of what's going on. Um, and then I just want to harmonize Scripture with Scripture and, and make it clear. Yeah. Otherwise, why does Jesus bring this up? If Jesus isn't trying to get her to deal with her sin, why, ter- why make the awkward turn? Go call your husband. Oh, that's right. You have no husband because you've had five. And the one you're with now isn't your husband. Why bring that up? If, unless it, I mean, if he's not bringing it up for her to deal with it, he's kind of being a jerk. It's rude, right? Why bring up someone's shame if you're not bringing it up for a good redemptive reason? Just, just, to, just want to let you know that I know that you have a shameful past. Doesn't seem like a right or righteous thing to do. So, yeah, it's not explicitly recorded, but I would say so. Yeah, Timothy. Yeah, and just to add to that, I mean, like you said, it's not explicit, but the water jar that she brought to get human mortal water that was only going to leave her thirsty again was specified as being left behind. I mean, literarily, that's an incredible picture. You know, if that was a play or a movie or something, I mean, you'd imagine the zooming in on that picture, you know, as she leaves saying, look, I've got the water that I didn't even come for, but the water that Christ told me about. And, uh, and, and so what a fulfillment of that statement that he made just verses before. Right. Right. Well, and, I, and the, other, the other thing I'd say is this, by implication, James. Samaritans recognize the books of Moses. Do the books of Moses speak about the divorce, adultery, and fornication? They've got a common text. She knows what he thinks as a Jew about that. And he knows, as a Samaritan, what she recognizes Moses says about that. So when he moves on to talk about God's work, seeking those who are going to worship him in spirit and in truth, I think it's... I, I don't... I think it's clearly implicit what Jesus thinks about that and what he's calling on her to think about that as well. Like, she's, she knows he's Jewish, and he's answering the Jewish religious question. So he's a religious Jew, right? And he, this religious Jew knows about my five husbands and my current cohabitation with this man. And then he's talking about worshiping God in the spirit and in truth and God seeking. I, I think there's a clear implication of he's not bringing this up because it's fine. That's just fine. You keep doing that. It's great. Um, I, I think that's clearly, um, or at least reasonably implicit in the context. And then Linda wants to have, and then Linda will close. Go, go, Dawn. Dawn, then Linda, you'll have the last word. Go, Dawn. I think for those of us who struggle with uh, self-righteousness, um, when he t- she says that he told me everything I ever did, um, he knows more about our sin than what we do. He knows you know, there's sins I, I 
don't realize I'm I'm you know I'm I don't know may not be aware of, but God knows them. Well, that's, that's, what's, that's what's amazing about this passage. Jesus, the whole time, has known the extent of her corruption and guilt. And he still starts out, hey, will you give me a drink? I mean, and he wants her to deal with it, but he's not bringing it up because he's, and I'm very, very disappointed in you. And I, you know, he, he wants to offer water to cleanse her. And, and not one to ru- rub her nose in it. Right, right. Okay, Linda. Okay, I'm just wondering, is there any significance at all to the fact that this points out that it's at the sixth hour, which coincides with his time on the cross when he also says he's thirsty? Is it the sixth hour on the cross? Noon? Uh, it's, it's possible, literally. I think the significance here is it makes it clear why Jesus is tired. So it starts out, Jesus, okay, back to John 4. Um, John 4. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. That's when we're told the hour. And it's to explain why Jesus is tired. If he's been walking all day and it's noon, yeah, I get why he's tired. Throw in the fact they don't have food. He sent the disciples in to buy food. One of the pieces of implication from that is they didn't have any. So he'd been walking all morning without food and it's noon. That's that's the, the most direct significance. Then we also know that's when noon when she came to the well, which is an odd time to come to a well. It makes sense for Jesus to do it because if you're traveling, you get to the well when you get to the well. But for her, why would you come out at noon instead of the morning or the evening? Um, so the sixth hour on the cross, I have not considered whether there's any deeper significance to that. I think it is interesting though, that John has Jesus twice speak of being thirsty and he gets more help here than he does on the cross. I mean, there's, there's a real sense, and we'll see this in the next two weeks. This Samaritan village and this encounter is meant to absolutely shame the Jews. Jesus comes to Israel, and the Jews crucify him. This Samaritan village welcomes him, calls him the Savior of the world, and wants him to stay with them. And the very first person Jesus clearly reveals his Messiahship to is this woman. That it's, it's meant to absolutely... The contrast, the, the despicable, awful Samaritans, and this particularly despicable, awful Samaritan woman actually responded rightly and received the truth. What's, what's stunning, I'll end with this, what's stunning is the, uh, I think I mentioned this last week, but why does Jesus leave? Why, when they ask him to stay, can he not stay? This is, this is remarkable. Um, in, in four... Oh, where is it? Uh, 43. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. Why? For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. I have to leave because I came to be rejected, and you're not rejecting me. If I'm going if if to get crucified, I'm going to have to leave Samaria and go to Jerusalem. <laughs> that's what he says. Well, that's what John says. They want him to stay. So, or for, he departed. Why? Because he himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So, when he came to Galilee. So, the whole reason he leaves is they're responding to him too well. I, he came to be crucified, and the Samaritans aren't going to do that to him. So, i got to go to Galilee. I mean, yeah. And with that, we'll call it a day. God bless. Godspeed. Good day.